Welcome to the Swim Swam Podcast. I'm your host, Coleman Hodges. Joining me today, we've got a very special guest. He is the first trans D1 NCAA men's athlete. He was Harvard class of 2019. Today, we have the pleasure of sitting down with Skylar Baylor. Skylar, how's it going? Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's going well. Um, I'm really excited to, to be back here. cover a myriad of topics today, but um, obviously a big story in the news lately has been uh, Leah Thomas of Penn, uh, the trans woman who <clears throat> competes for the Penn women. There's been a lot of controversy about this issue, and we wanted to, we wanted to get your take on it. You um, made a very insightful Instagram post about this issue, um, but it, uh, maybe a bigger issue um, generally. Uh, and you emphasized biodiversity in this post. Can you, I, I want to start there. Can you explain a little bit more to our audience of, of what you mean by biodiversity and how this plays into this Leah Thomas situation? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So biodiversity, the term biological diversity, right? Diversity, differences, variation within our biology. Um, sports depends on the existence of biodiversity. If everybody had the exact same body that performed the exact same way, we would have no competitive sports, right? Because there would be no differences in how we, we our bodies moved and worked and um, nobody would be stronger or nobody would be faster, et cetera. Um, so sports, number one, depend on biodiversity. We're not talking about trans athletes yet. We're just talking about sports, right? Um, if we move into looking at specific categories of people, so for example, let's start with just men, mostly cis men, there's plenty of biodiversity, right? Um, a prime example within our sport that everybody knows about is Michael Phelps. Uh, you can Google this if you'd like, but there's plenty of examples within Michael Phelps' body that show that he has biological diversity that actually provides biological advantages. For example, his lung capacity is twice the average athlete's lung capacity. He produces half the amount of lactic acid that the average athlete produces. Um, he has like enormous feet compared to his height. His wingspan is like four or something inches longer than his, uh, than his height. So there's a plenty of, those are just a couple of things. There's plenty of facets of Michael Phelps's biology that award him biological advantages specifically in swimming. He probably wouldn't be better at other sports. He might, um, but there are specific things that make him better for specifically swimming. Um, nobody looks at him and says that's unfair. Or if they do, they say, wow, that's so unfair. He's so good. Wow, it's right. It's an adoration, um, complete ad admiration. Uh, and even when um, they tested his lactic acids, uh, he was praised for being a genetically superior specimen. Right? So when we see biodiversity within the men's category, most of the time, if not all of the time, that biodiversity is praised. Wow, he's made for that sport. Right. When we see it within women's sports, it depends on who we're talking about. Sometimes it can be praised. Um, so when I, when I, the first example I like to provide is if you see, let's say there's a, I don't know, a six foot one volleyball player. She's not transgender. Okay. Let's just say she's, a, I don't know, she plays at UCLA or something. Um, people look at her, they say, wow, she's so tall. Her hands are so big. She's made for volleyball, right? Nobody says it's unfair, but she's six foot one. She is I don't know, eight inches taller than the average woman in the US, right? Is that unfair? Sure. Does it mean we disqualify her? Absolutely not. 
Um, then as the biodiversity gets to be within specific groups, specifically marginalized people. So let's just, again, it's not trans women, but let's look at black women. There's a lot of black women who have been criticized for being quote, too masculine or even called men because they are you know, supposedly too strong or too tall or too muscular or whatever. Um, we've seen this with Castro Semenya, we've seen it with uh, Serena Williams, so many times with Serena Williams. We've seen it with Simone Biles most recently, right? Um, this is racism now um, and racism and misogyny coupled together against black women. It's called uh, misogynoir, excuse me, misogynoir. Um, okay, so my point is biodiversity exists everywhere, but as we get into more and more marginalized groups, it's usually called unfair. Right. Some people are even disqualified for it. I'll pull out two, again, very specific examples. We look at Castro Semenya, who's a woman um, who they figured out has some kind of uh, biodiversity within her body that maybe causes her to have higher levels of testosterone. We don't know exactly everything, but um, the reason is because they can't release every race information for her privacy. But there's there's higher levels of testosterone. Um, we look at Michael Phelps, who has lower levels of lactic acid, plus lung capacity. Michael Phelps is praised. Cassius Semenya is completely booted out. Uh, they remove her medals and they bar from competition until he, she artificially changes her body. Nobody is telling Michael Phelps to add lactic acid to his body or reduce his lung capacity, right? So we're just seeing very different treatment of people within the women's category and people within the men's category. Now let's bring in trans women, right? So somebody like Leah. The argument is really the same. There is biological diversity, of course. And there are some trans women that are taller than average. There are also some trans women that are not, right? There might be trans women that are stronger than average. There are also some trans women that are not. Um, but the problem is when we, um, when we look at trans women, society immediately says that's unfair, as opposed to recognizing that, of course, there's biological diversity. But perhaps that biological diversity isn't actually something we should disqualify or uh, exclude people for. It's just another example of biological diversity. That is what sports are based on. Um, I can get into any piece of that, but that's the uh, long summary. <laughs> so that's, yeah, that, that, that's a great summary. Thank you. Um, again, biodiversity, everyone's different, essentially. So exactly. that says, um, <laughs> regardless of, of or, or I guess, including race, gender, sex. And so, um, in this, in this case of Leah Thomas, the argument is bringing up that, uh, you know, the phrasing is being used a lot that, well, she is a biological man. Um, and you also hit this in your Instagram post. Um, so, so for people who are bringing up that argument saying, oh, she goes through male puberty, um, you know, how, how do you answer this or, or what is the, what is your perspective on that? Okay, so a couple things. Let's start with language, which is what I put in my post, like you said. Um, I always encourage people to say that somebody was assigned male at birth, they went through testosterone-driven puberty, as opposed to saying they are a, quote, biological man, or that they went through male puberty. I understand where these terms come from, and people will fight me on these, of course, um, but actually the concept of biological sex is not that simple. People think that it's, you know, penis equals man and vagina equals woman or testosterone equals man and estrogen equals woman. And it's actually way more complicated than that. Um, people will be like, well, it's basic biology. Actually, basic biology that you learned in middle school is not enough. <laughs> this is actually very complex biology um, that even some of the most, you know, best scientists don't know exactly all about how uh, biological sex work. It's very complicated. Um, but there's many facets of biological sex. A reminder, everybody um, has testosterone and estrogen. It's just different concentrations that produce different effects. All athletes on average have higher levels of testosterone than non-athlete counterparts. So none of these things are absolutes. So that's why I, I recommend people don't use the term biological biological man or biologically male, because it's not that simple. 
right? Um, and even if we look at it from a hormone standpoint, Leah's on hormone suppressant. So biologically speaking with her hormone suppressant, she matches cis women, right? So that's also, it doesn't work that way. So biologically, a man is a, is a really erroneous uh, and non-specific term. If you want to talk about biology, I encourage people to be specific. People assigned male at birth, uh, people who have penises, people who have uteruses, people, et cetera, right? Um, being specific is really important when we're talking about biology because these buckets are actually not comprehensive enough and not exact enough. Um, when we talk about what people call male puberty, I often, again, recommend people say testosterone driven puberty instead of gendering the puberty. Um, there's a lot of arguments that people will say, okay, that, you know, awards some kind of advantage of some, uh, you know, of some kind. Um, and there actually is not amazingly conclusive research on what happens when somebody who is an elite level athlete goes through testosterone driven puberty and then goes through testosterone blockers and then competes. Why? Because there isn't a great inclusion model for trans people in sports, which we are just starting. So the first thing I recommend is, and even in, in order to do the research we, we probably need to do, we need to include trans people in sports starting, starting there. Right. Um, the next thing to note is that there, you know, so like I said, inclusive, but, but the, as we move from there, the, the thing to remember is Leah, like I said, is on hormone suppressants. Um, she is taking hormone suppressants. She is also taking estrogen. And this does change her physiology quite a bit. Um, and there has been research that supports the, the, the level, right, that they have cut off um, for testosterone suppressants. And she, she meets that. So she's following all the rules. Um, and we have had those rules actually in place, uh, I believe, since 2003, but instated into, since 2004 for the Olympics. And people all will say, oh, well, then we're going to have trans women domination of every sport and every whatever. There has been one trans woman, one singular trans woman has competed in the women's category since 2004, and she didn't even medal, right? And that didn't happen until 2021 slash 2020, right? Um, and people also forget that. <laughs> so um, is Leah doing amazingly well? Yeah. But is she also an outlier because all great athletes are outliers also? Yeah, right. So I think that we, we also get lost in, in these generalizations about trans people and how they're just going to be, you know, destroying sports. And, um, and that's just, you know, factually, factually not the case. Does that answer your question about, about the puberty specifically? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think, you know, this, this topic of, of fairness is just brought up a lot, but I think you answered that pretty clearly. You know, I think it's, it's, I, sports isn't fair. <laughs> yeah. Sports aren't fair. And, you know, let's, let's like, let me hit on that point actually too, because it's a big deal. A lot of the people who are coming out who are like, this isn't fair. Like this is going to destroy women's sports. Like, you know, this is, you know, all the, all the stuff we've been fighting, fighting for with women's sports is getting destroyed by Leah Thomas. Um, first of all, not true. Second of all, none of these people, truly in, in, in last, at least the people I've read about care about women's sports, because if they did, they would be fighting for equality in women's sports. And there are far more barriers to equality in women's sports than trans women potentially winning in, in, the, in the women's category. Um, for example, equal access to sports, right? That's a huge deal. Sexism, a systemic sexism that says women and girls shouldn't even play sports, right? That's a huge deal. Um, access to the proper funding to play the sport that they want to play, um, social support in schools to have, have people actually play. There's so many other really real issues that contribute to fairness in women's sport. The fact that the women's national team in soccer isn't paid nearly what other athletes are paid if they are male, right? There's so many discrepancies in women's sport that none of these people who are, who are you know, inflamed by Leah Thomas 
are actually fighting about. If you cared about women's sport, and there are people, you know, some people who are who are fighting about all these things in women's sport, but a lot of these people um, are are actually cishet men, right? So cisgender, straight men um, who are suddenly really angry about Leah Thomas playing in a women's sport. Um, and I, I truly don't think it's about fairness for them. It is, it is entrenched in wanting to police and control bodies that, that somehow violate the cis hetero norm. I, and I love that you ended your Instagram post with that um, because it, it, it really does bring awareness to where, where these, where these angers or where this rage is coming from and, and maybe sure what the what the problem actually is um but so getting back to leah um you know when when leah came on the podcast she mentioned your name specifically as someone she went to um you know for advice for support through this transition um and i'd love to hear your perspective on that side of the story of you know when leah came to you what kinds of questions did she have and what advice did you offer her yeah. So Leah, um, I mean, we both swim in the Ivy League or I guess for me swim for her swims um, in the Ivy League. And so we, you know, we were, were connected. I, the swimming world is pretty small, as you probably know. And so I, I knew her through other people as well. Um, and when she started learning about herself, she reached out to me and, and I'm, I've been very public. And so at the time I had a lot of trans athletes reaching out to me. I still do. Um, and she just said, hey, I don't know what to do. Uh, you know, I don't know if this is really, you know, right for me. Not, not that she, she wasn't unsure about her identity. I think most people actually who come out as trans are, are fairly sure about that. It's what do I do after that, right? Especially if you're an athlete, do I tell people, do I transition? Do I switch teams? Is this going to ruin my life? Like, what do I do? Right? So it was, I think it was a, a, a sort of slew of what I would really consider standard questions. Um, and, and I, and I, I, the reason I say that that way about them being standard is, is because I want to illustrate that these are, these questions aren't new. These questions, um, from a trans athlete to, to me are, are here because of the systemic oppression we experience. The question of, can I exist as this person, right? Can I really be myself? Is there happiness, Skylar? Was it worth it? Right. The questions they're not, they're asking aren't, I'm unsure of who I am. Like, can I be, you know, am I really trans? Those aren't usually the questions. The questions are, I am sure of this, but oh my God, the world is terrifying. Right. And Skylar, how do I navigate that? So um, Leah had those questions and, and I, you know, I just sat and talked with her. I gave her my experience. I did not push her in any one direction um, except to do what I, what, you know, I thought was best for her, which was for her to do what's best for her. Um, I did not push her to compete for either team because I, I don't think that's my place. Um, I think that there are trans athletes that, that love competing as the gender they were assigned at birth. And there are also trans athletes that can't do that. Um, for me, I, I could not have stayed on the women's team. Um, and Leah, that ended up being her decision. Well, she had to, she had to transition to the team that was um, aligned with her gender identity, but there are people that, you know, that works either way. Um, and that's why I never push. And I've seen success in, in both sides, both you know, numerically speaking in their sport and also, you know, subjective well-being. So um, my goal was just to be a, a reminder that she could do what she wanted for herself, that success and happiness could lie in either realm, um, and that she should be looking for support for who she is first, and then logistically figure everything else out. Um, so when we got to the logistics standpoint, when she did decide she wanted to transition and start, you know, start, um, medically transitioning. I also guided her with that process because I've, I've done that before. Um, I do that 
as I mean, not my business these days is, is all um, aiding in trans trans folks and, and educational resources. So um, I just kind of um, did what I could to walk her along the process as much as she needed. She's also a very smart, independent person and did a lot of it herself. Um, and then, you know, actually I, I wasn't in touch with her for a lot of the pandemic because she was just kind of doing her thing. Um, and then we've reconnected since, uh, since the media explosion, um, mostly to just for me to be a support through this process, because, um, it's, it's been a pretty horrific response from a lot of people. Um, I mean, you don't have to go that far. You can look at the comments on any, <laughs> any article, you can stay right here on swim, Sam and go look at the comments. People are, are pretty ruthless. So, um, my goal is now just to support her, um, dealing with that. Yeah. <clears throat> I, the, the, uh, the, the comments, the, uh, the attention that it's gotten has certainly surprised me. Um, I, I do want to hit on one point that you mentioned. It was surprising that, um, you know, you, you mentioned, well, there are a lot of trans athletes who compete under their, their gender that they were assigned at birth. And there are a lot of trans athletes who, um, compete as, as their, as their true gender. Um, which, which just made me think, well, are there, you know, how many trans athletes do we have in, in high school or in the NCAA that aren't as public as, as yourself or, or Leah? Um, but as you said, they're operating in a system that isn't very inclusive or isn't supportive at all. Yeah. I mean, I can give you some answers. I don't have numbers. It's really, sure. I, mean, I, would, I would love to give you numbers, but I don't have them yet. Maybe I will. <laughs> um, but I get, I, I would say I get pretty weekly messages, if not multiple times a month messages from folks who say, hi, I'm a trans athlete. I'm competing in X sport. I don't know what to do. I'm miserable. What do I do? Um, that's one of the messages. Another message is, hi, I'm competing in my sport. I finally got to compete on you know the team that I want to compete for. And you inspired me to do that. Thank you. Blah, blah, blah. Um, it's less likely that the second thing happens. It is more likely that they're like, I don't know what to do help. Um, I cannot get to every message. Unfortunately, I wish that I could, but that's why I try to provide sort of general resources that help people. Um, but, but it's, it's, it's heartbreaking how many kids are, are, and and this is what I really want to hit on how many kids, right? We're not talking about Leah. We're not talking about NCAA. I'm talking about children, right? Between the ages of usually like 10 and 18, right? Who are just trying to play sports. They're not trying to even win most of them, right? These kids are are not going to become collegiate athletes. They're not going to be professional athletes. They're not going to be Olympic athletes. They're just playing because they want to, because it's fun. And most people who play sports play sports for that reason, for fun. We always lose this when we start talking about trans athletes. We always go to the Olympics. Everybody's going to win the Olympics. They're going to dominate the Olympics. Less than 2% of high school athletes become collegiate athletes. Less than 1% of those athletes become professional athletes. And something probably less than 1% of those become Olympic athletes. So we are talking about a massively small percentage of athletes that will compete in the Olympics ever. And the likelihood that we have that and somebody who's trans, extremely small. If anything, we are massively underrepresented in Olympic sports. Something like 5,000 Olympic athletes competed in the women's category in the last Olympics um, and and zero, sorry, this is the um, 2016 Olympics, zero of them were trans, right? If we were properly uh, represented, at least 50 would have been trans. That's zero. The next Olympics, one. Um, so what we're forgetting is that we're talking about most athletes are kids 
And the reason I'm bringing this up and you asked me about, you know, what are the numbers like, how much, you know, this exclusion essentially is happening in the country. Um, over 70 anti-transgender sports bills and bans went through the legislative session uh, last year, right, in 2021. Um, 70 bills in 30 states. That is more than one bill per state. 70 bills, right? This is over, there was over 100 anti-trans bills, over 300 anti-LGBT plus bills, but most of the trans bills were focusing on sports. And I want to remind you, this is not about the Olympics. This is not about the NCAA. This is not about professional sports. They are literally about one group of people, children. We're talking about like eight-year-old Sally who wants to play soccer with her friends you know, after school. We're talking about little kids who just want to play t-ball with the same gender. We are not talking about professional sports. Can kids be good at sports? Of course, but when they get to elite levels, then they are participating in elite level sports and all elite level sports that allow trans athletes have regulations for the inclusion of trans athletes that usually include some kind of hormone regulation. So we're talking about kids playing school sports. It doesn't matter what team they play for. Right. And, and, and also people forget that most kids also just numerically speaking between zero and 13, they haven't even gone through puberty. Right. So there are no biological differences to speak of, except for the presence or absence of a penis. And I don't know about you, but nobody I know plays sports with their penis. If they do, we have a different <laughs> problem, a very different problem. So um, it's, it's really important to remember that we're mostly talking about children. And, um, and, and this, this is a part of a, I told you, you know, when we were talking offline, but this is, a bigger conversation than Leah. This is about a whole system of an attempt to put people in these boxes of this is exactly what boy looks like. This is exactly what girl looks like. And this is only what it can look like. Um, and mostly it's about marginalizing and policing women's bodies, girls' bodies specifically. A lot of people don't really care about, about the men's category. Like I said before, everybody's like, sure, you have an biological advantage. Wonderful. We'll praise you for it. But if you're in the women's category, it's a problem. Um, and this isn't new. It's the continued policing of women's bodies, specifically marginalized women's bodies. And now it's the legal enforcement of that policing, right? Because in a lot of states, they are proposing gender verification tests. And a lot of the states are including genital exams for children, which means that they can basically say, I think you're transgender. I accuse you of that. I bring it to the board. And then they are allowed to literally examine the genitals as part of the process to verify the gender of this child. That's not about fairness. That, that, that's like straight up pedophilia. Right? It's, it's, it's horrible. So there's a lot of these systems, like I said, it's a, it's a bigger conversation. It's a bigger um, goal uh, of, I think, really the far right um, to, to police women's bodies and to police anybody that, that violates, again, the cis heteronorm, um, the white cis heteronorm. But people are forgetting that this means that everybody in those categories is going to be policed, not just trans girls. Right. So in order to know which ones are trans, you have to test them. You have to accuse them. So anybody can be accused. At what point is a girl too tall or too strong or her hair too short or um, too fast or too good at her sport? At what point is she too something, too masculine to be accused of being transgender? It's literally legally enforcing. This is what a girl's body can look like. Here's how we can call them out and here's how we can police them. This is going to affect all girls because any girl can be pulled into there and, and be examined, right? That is what's going to truly destroy women's sport with this legal policing of bodies, not the inclusion of trans women. Uh, again, an interesting point. So I want to, I, I would like, to, with that, I'd like to turn the focus a little more towards you because we yeah. have this interesting juxtaposition where, you know, maybe I'm totally off on this, but Leah Thomas 
goes from competing on a men's team to competing on a wins team, a trans woman gets a lot of attention uh, in the media. And a lot of it is not that great. I think it is fair to say um, you, you know, went uh, major transition, went to Harvard, competed for the men's team. All the media I saw about it was like, wow, we have this first trans NCAA athlete who's like openly trans. This is great. Um, really, really interesting. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience and, and what, what feedback, either positive or negative, you were getting during that process yeah. and when you actually started competing at Harvard? Sure. Um, well, you, you made a really important point. In general, you are correct. The mass response to Leah is pretty negative. The mass response to me was fairly positive. That doesn't mean either is without the other, right? Leah has several supporters um, and, and people who have come out in support of her, which is great. Um, and then I also had several non-supporters uh, who were not so nice to me, but you're absolutely correct. It is weighted completely differently. Why misogyny, sexism, et cetera, all things we just went through. Mm-hmm. Um, people think that I wasn't a threat because they thought I would suck, right? The transphobia is the opposite, that there's no way Skylar can compete against the men, so whatever, do whatever he wants, right? Um, where it's the opposite for Leah. Um, I didn't suck, just to just to be clear, but <laughs> that's aside the point. Um, okay, so my experience, like, like I just said, was, I think, surprisingly positive. I was very nervous about the response, but there were a lot of people that were supportive. I struggled with, with some people that were really important to me, um, but generally speaking, I got overwhelming support from my coaches, from the NCAA, from the director of athletics at Harvard. Um, that's Bob Scalise. He, he's no longer the director, but um, lots of support. Media, generally supportive. There is always something that's not supportive. Um, there were lots of articles that were not so great. I do not often Google my name, and I definitely didn't at the beginning um, because I think it was actually worse then. Um, but for the most part, it was, it was fairly supportive. I think that I... Um, my biggest struggle was that I was alone, or at least I felt alone. I didn't see anybody else like me. There was, there was one other sort of big trans athlete that was around, uh, when I was in college, his name's Chris Mosier. He's a duathlon, uh, duathlete, my bad. Um, and he, he, um, and I have been in connection and he was helpful in, in moments, but for the, for the most part, we do very different sports. He's, um, not a college athlete anymore. He is kind of doing his own thing. He doesn't interface with locker rooms. Right. Um, so me being in a college locker room was, I think the biggest issue, the sport itself was honestly the same, right? Everybody gets in the pool, they're underwater, you're training. A lot of people are co-ed training anyway. So the training itself wasn't that different for me. The biggest struggle was like learning what it was like to be in the men's locker room, like finding my own masculinity and manhood in the, in the men's locker room, figuring out how to navigate the world uh, as somebody who was, who was then perceived as male from before having been perceived as female, right? There's a lot of just transitional pun intended and pun included, shifts that I had to go through, right? Um, So I I think in general, it was fairly smooth, except for the fact that I was wildly alone. Um, And I think that the more I've been out of college and being able to look back on it, the more I've been like, wow, I was really, um, really going that, you know, going on my own. I had people supporting me. My parents are very supportive. My, like I said, my teammates and my coaches were, but nobody could say, oh, I've done this before, you know, watch out for X, Y, and Z. Um, and as I've watched Leah start to become a public figure and, and, you know, start, you know, wanting to share her story first through swim slam and we'll see where it goes. But, 
um, I've honestly felt almost like this re-traumatization where I'm like, oh my God, this is like, she's going through this all over again. I have to tell her everything that, you know, I know about this so that she doesn't have to feel like I did. Um, and that, like I said at the beginning of that, that's my number one goal is, is to be there in a way that says, hey, I've done this before right? Hey, here are the things that, that, you know, you can expect. And of course, it's not going to be the same as my experience, as you already mentioned, she's getting far more hatred than I did. Um, but I, but I know what those arguments are. I know what people are going to say. We've watched it happen for years. Um, honestly, I can say like with, with hundred percent honesty, I've been preparing for this day since the beginning of my transition, because I knew that at some point after me, a trans woman would compete on the women's team. And I knew the world would go ballistic. Um, and I saw, so I've been preparing for this and, you know, people saw the Leah post and you saw the Leah post, but I've made probably tens of posts before them, before that about trans women in sports. Um, they always get lots of hatred and they always get lots of comments. And so I've been sort of crafting, um, my thoughts in response and been able to hone what I can say. And now I'm passing that to Leah to make sure she's best equipped. So she doesn't have to stumble the way I did. That's it. That's a great cause. I, I, I really love hearing that. Um, and, and I, let's, let's talk about that platform yeah. because you have a, a huge following, be it on social media, be it from your website. Um, you've, I mean, you've become a, a real champion of not only trans people, but just of, of the Asian community of, of athletes. I mean, uh, just of a lot of different communities, especially marginalized communities. Um, and you talk about them, you know, you, you make constant posts about, Hey, here's this information. Here's this information. This thing happened. This is my response to it. And this is, I think how people should, should view it. Um, so how did that, you know, just from your transition on, um, how did that platform grow and how did your purpose become, you know, start pointing more and more towards that? Yeah. So I um, will back up in my journey a little bit. I came out the summer of 2014 as transgender. I was in a center for eating disorder recovery. I really struggled with my mental health throughout high school. And that, that uh, caused me to take a gap year between high school and college. I put everything on hold, including swimming, including Harvard to figure it out because I, I mean, I was really at the edge of a cliff. I was really not doing well. Um, went to treatment, figured out that I was trans, worked on a lot of um, self healing, if you will. Um, and from there was like, okay, now I can figure myself out more. At that time, I started my Instagram. So I started Pink Mannery. Uh, it was completely looking for support as opposed to providing it. And over the course of the next year, as I transitioned, as I learned about myself, as I decided to swim for the men's team, which was all very publicly documented in complete uh, confusion. You can go back and look at the posts. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm going to swim for the women's team. I'm going to swim for the men's team. I'm all over the place. Um, and it's all documented. <laughs> um, but when I started actually finding my way, people started falling along for their own reasons, right? So they were looking for support. Um, and then when I joined um, the, the men's team at Harvard and, and really began sharing my journey at, as an athlete, I think people kind of grabbed on, my story got bigger and, and I got more of a platform. But throughout college, most of my experience on online was just, hey, hey, this is who I am, this is what I'm doing. And it was advocacy through existing, not advocacy intentionally, if that makes sense. Um, I was just kind of like, hello, here I am. If you're learning from this, great. If not, okay. Um, I actually, I say that, and I did 102 speeches about my experience throughout college. So before I graduated, I'd already done 100 plus speeches, um, starting to do this educational work specifically within trans, um, trans DEI inclusion, right? Or that's repetitive, trans DEI. 
Um, when I graduated, um, I went on a tour. I uh, toured um, 43 speeches in 26 cities over 38 days and saw that this, this need was really there, that people from all around the country were, were really interested actually in learning about what trans people are and what a trans athlete is and what it means uh, to be, you know, to be me. Um, and, you know, not just me, but people like me. Um, and I, I actually have focused in those uh, on that tour on, on red cities, specifically more conservative places who wouldn't otherwise have access. Um, and I found people still much more open to doing this, this learning than I expected. And after that, I decided I needed to do this full time. That was sort of me like my last hurrah. But after that, I was like, okay, people really need this. And also I'm good at it and I want to do it. So I decided um, I actually quit the job I signed up to do, um, which was something else. And I decided to do this advocacy work full time. And it's really just blossomed. Um, I thought the pandemic would stop it, but it, it actually only increased access because now I can do a speech from anywhere from right here. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so now I teach full time um, about what it means to be transgender I share you know and the reason I'm answering your question this way is because my Instagram is part of that right I provide educational infographics about really whatever I'm thinking about <laughs> um, mostly trans inclusion pieces I call it trans literacy or gender literacy um, but the goal was just to continue providing what I found productive uh, and and essentially being that I, I kind of stumbled into it. I found that I was sharing myself um, and people liked it and that I explained myself well and that I liked doing that. So it all kind of wove together, if that makes sense, um, in, a, in a really wonderful way. Yeah, that is wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Uh, let's talk about swimming. What, you know, Leah, when we spoke with her, she, you know, she talked about the role swimming has played in this transition in her life period. Um, you know, before you transitioned while you were going through this. And then obviously since then, um, what, what role has swimming played for you? Always said, especially when I was competing that swimming is, was, and is in many ways, the most important part of my life. Um, I haven't been competing for, for several years at this point since I graduated. So, um, less so now, but when it was, you know, when it was always in my life. It was absolutely my everything. Um, and I think um, for many years, it was honestly what got me through my life. Swimming saved my life many times over because it was the place where I could just be. Ironically so, um, swimming has has been the place where I actually feel the least attached to my gender. Um, despite being the most gendered thing I do, um, if, if you swim or if anybody who's listening swims, which probably most people do, um, swimming is one of those sports where you're actually not interfacing with your body a whole lot. You're not looking at yourself. You're not looking at other people's bodies. You are staring at the bottom of the pool. If you're swimming correctly, you're mostly staring at the bottom of the pool or maybe in front of you, and maybe you're seeing the tips of your fingers, right? You're not really seeing your body. Um, and there's this sort of both disconnection and pure connection with body that happens in swimming. So for me, I've always felt like when I'm swimming, I'm just swimming. I'm just the action. I'm not a body. I'm not a gender. I'm not a boy or a girl or whatever. I'm, I'm literally just the act of swimming. And I think that ability um, to disconnect and connect both with my body during some of the worst times in my life when I felt so disconnected outside of the pool were really life-saving. I, I don't know if I would have been able to get through a lot of my life, especially in middle and high school when I was really struggling with mental health, um, if I hadn't had swimming, because it provided me purpose, it provided me space, it provided me, you know, that, that flow state, which provides joy um, and, and just peace, honestly. Um, so swimming was everything to me and the thought of losing it really felt life-ending 
Like when I, when I was coming out as transgender and learning about my identity, I was like, oh my God, if I have to lose swimming, I, I don't know if I can continue living. I don't know if that's what I, you know, what, what will be um, possible for me. So it really felt like if I had to choose between swimming and being myself as a trans person, being openly, you know, male, if you will, it felt like choosing between living and, and living. It was like, how do I, the other choice is, is death essentially. Um, and I know a lot of people feel that way. And, and I explain it in excruciating detail because I know a lot of trans athletes feel that way. It really feels like we're choosing, um, choosing only like it's life and death. It's that serious um, because these things mean a lot to us. Um, and I think everybody should have that, that right to play sports, right? Everybody should be able to compete in a, in a, in a sports team that aligns with their gender identity. And we should let people do that. They, 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 you know, as important as they are, they are also just sports. Um, and they are supposed to be fun. They're supposed to be about team building. They're supposed to be about learning so much more than just winning. Um, and, and when I talk about how meaningful swimming is to me, it wasn't, and you might notice none of that was about winning. None of that was about being on the podium or how good I was. That was fun too. Don't get me wrong. But swimming kept me alive because I loved my sport. And I think we also need to remember that. Good reminder. Thank you for that one, Skylar. Um, I, I, I don't want to keep you too long, but I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down and chat. Sure. I mean, I think this is um, obviously a, a prevalent topic now, but just a, a lot of good reminders as, as we just heard. Um, any parting thoughts, anything we missed or anything you want to share before we yeah. sign off today? I do have one thing. Um, for the folks who have sat through all of this, I'm really glad that, that you have. Um, and I want to remind you that you are allowed to have knee-jerk reactions. You are allowed to have a feeling in response to Leah Thomas competing or me competing. You are allowed to have these feelings, but the feelings do not equate facts always, right? Just because we feel something does not mean that it is actually founded in fact, it means we have feelings, right? And unfortunately, because of the very biased world we live in, the very transphobic, sexist, racist, misogynist world we live in, a lot of those feelings actually are very influenced by those biases. So if you have a knee-jerk reaction, if you feel something about, especially something negative about me or Leah competing, okay, but let's not make conclusions from that. Let's sit and watch this. Let's digest it. Maybe you need to watch it a couple of times. I strongly encourage you to go to my website, pinkmantoray.com slash transathlete, which uh, you can probably include in the, in the um, article, but really sit with these things because it's likely that you have feelings and that's okay. But those feelings, like I said, are based or, or at least very influenced by some biases that are probably not factual. Um, and we need to really unpack those. We all have them. I have them too, but it's really important to sit down and unpack them um, and recognize that I'm a human and Leah's a human and we both deserve to play our sports. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swam podcast on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.